You see, I'm, we're standing on holy ground. You, uh, it's just a serious thing. You might want to take your shoes off. I hesitate to speak about such depths of God, but I believe the Lord has given me a, a hugely important message. So let me ask you a question. Does your God walk around with a thermometer checking on your temperature and his to see whether they coincide? Have you ever heard the serpent's hiss? You don't deserve God's love. You don't amount to much. You're too sinful, you're too impure, you're too fat, you're too ugly, you're too thin, you're too thick. You're too insecure, you're too weak, you're too angry, you're not a good mother, you're not a good father, you're not a good husband, you're not a good wife. Your witness is marred. Have you ever heard such lies? Have you believed them? So I want to take you to the Garden of Eden, and I want to ask you, what do you think God's reaction was when Adam fell into sin? When the human race was plunged into ruin, when the human race was falling headlong into nothingness because of Adam's disobedience, do you think God threw up his hands and walked away disgusted? Do you think he did a celestial basil forty? He said, right! Do you think he walked away frustrated with exploded, unexploded anger? Do you think he was taken back at the sheer audacity of Adam and Eve? Do you think he went back into the courts of heaven or wherever, muttering dark thoughts of vengeance? Do you think... Perhaps his blood began to boil as he began to think of ways he could punish and bring retribution down upon our heads. Too long, the church has believed that lie and tarred the image of God with our mythology. That diseased and tormented mythology. Too often we've imagined a dark God behind the face of Christ. Watchful dragons, or better, watchful demons, have pinched and twisted the fact of God's undaunting, undaunted, undiminished love for us into something capricious, into something fanciful, into something impossible for us to know and to enjoy. And I come across Christians day in, day out, who think like this. My guess is you're in this room too. But you see, down down the ages, there roars a large no... That's not how it is at all. Instead, Adam's rebellion was met with a stout and immediate reply from the Lord of adoptive grace. And this is what he says. 
And this is what he says to each of you. And I wish I could stamp it on your forehead and carve it on your heart. He says, I did not create you to perish. I did not create you to flounder in misery. I did not create you to live in such appalling pain and brokenness and heartache and destitution. I created you for life. I created you to share in my life and glory. I created you to participate in the fullness and joy, the free-flowing friendship and goodness and wholeness that I share with the Son and the Spirit. And I will have it no other way. It will be so. When a little girl believes there's a monster lurking in the cupboard or under her bed, what happens to her? It is as if a razor is slicing through her soul. And she is, one could say, baptized with anxiety. The end result is that she has her freedom to enjoy life destroyed. She can no longer laugh or play or go into her room. She's been turned in upon herself and fear takes over. False expectations appearing real. F-E-A-R. Behold your response. And my response to God. How we've made him into a monster. Hiding. Out to get us. Out to trip us up. And all he's ever wanted. Is to be close to you. That's what he's ever wanted. That's why you are made. That you and he should be friends. I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. Yet up and down the land there are Christians who think God is some kind of cosmic policeman who peers over the parapet of heaven and laughs up his sleeve every time any of us trip up or don't quite measure up to the standard or somehow our temperature is not the same as his or in some way we see not the smile of God's grace but the frown of his judgment. And the thing is, when we start sharing what we call the good news and we have that attitude, it shows Our words are saying one thing, but actually, as people look at us, they look at us and they say, my, you're brittle. My, your words are honey, but you feel sharp. My, you talk about an inclusive, embracing love, but actually, what you're doing is pushing me away. And the very great good news... becomes 
perverted and twisted and reduced because the people who are supposed to represent the good news don't know the good news for themselves. Does this make sense? Tired of a church that misrepresents the God of astonishing love. And so, to help you get a grip on this, I want to explain to you in a way perhaps you've never seen before why did Christ die? And what difference does it make? So if we'd understand why Jesus Christ died, we must go way, way, way back. Way back to the beginning, indeed before there ever was a beginning. And we must see God, the God who has a fire in his belly, burning with love, with passion for the people he has yet to create. There was never a time when God was alone. There never was a time when the Father was not Father, and the Son was not Son, and the Spirit was not Spirit. There was never a time when the Father was not Father, and the Son and the Spirit were not present. Never, never, ever has the God of the Bible ever been revealed as an unmoved mover. That is an enlightenment distortion. That is a lie famously described as as Paley's watchmaker. You're walking through a field, you come across a watch, somebody has set the watch going, the watch is running down. That somebody is the unmoved mover who started the whole thing going, but that's not what the Bible teaches about God. The Bible says God is far from being an unmoved mover, God is a moved person. who at the very outset is relational. He delights in fellowship. He delights in camaraderie. He delights in togetherness. He delights in communion. And this shared, loving life was not in any way boring or in any way lonely or inadequate. You see, God never made us because he had a need. And we fulfilled that need for him. As soon as you start talking like that, you bring into the Trinity something that makes God less than God. The only reason why God made you is he wanted to. And he said, what we've got as Father, Son and Holy Spirit is so astonishingly good, so amazingly, unutterably glorious. Let's make humans to bring them into the circle of this never-ending, astonishing love. And there's no emptiness in that circle of love. There's mutual delight and there's self-giving, unbounded joy. There's infinite creativity. There's immeasurable and inconceivable goodness. And this trinity of love is the rhyme and reason 
for the existence of you and me and the whole of life and the whole of the glorious, splendid cosmos. Hello? In the immortal words of American Express, the Lord looked upon you and said, you'll do nicely. Now think of the ascension. Think of that great climatic event to Christ's ministry, that coronation, which means, by the way, I hope you've got this, that there is a man forever in the Trinity. I'll say it again. There is a man forever in the Trinity. There's a human being who lives and abides and dwells and intercedes inside this circle of all circles, this trinity. There is a human being within the camaraderie, within the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when we say the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, we're praying, oh God, may we share the life of the trinity right now. And there could be no ascension without incarnation. God, the second person of the Trinity, decided to become human and entered all the darkness, all the loneliness, all the fear, the brokenness, all the estrangement, all the frustration, all the anger, all the bitterness, all the depression, all the envy, all the jealousy, or the strife and lust, or the slander and the isolation, or the guilt and the sadness and the madness and the sorrow, and even the murder of our human existence. And into this non-being and extinction, as Athanasius saw it, Christ entered... Crossing all possible worlds to lift us up out of the Mari pit, to place us next to him, to put a new song in our heart, song of deliverance to the Lord. Moses said, I want to see you. God says, you cannot, but there is a place next to me on the rock. There's a place next to him on the rock. Better in the rock. And the only way for the fall to be undone is through death. For every man who sins shall die. And so human existence, broken and estranged from God as it is, must be radically recreated, utterly transformed and put back together, whole and healed. That's what the Bible means by reconciled. 
So the man God who'd come from heaven was no longer fit for heaven but for hell. And every dirty, deceitful, lustful, envious trick of the human heart, every Auschwitz, every act of abuse, every single tragedy, every single flood and damage and danger was piled on him. And the man God who's no longer fit for heaven but for hell and cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I want you to ask yourself, do you think you're worth that much? And Mother Teresa would end every single letter with these words, if you were the only sinner in the world, Jesus Christ would still have died for you. And I hope you're saying, yes, I'm worth that much. Because before the foundation of the world, Father, Son and Holy Spirit said, I want you in the circle. And Jesus Christ died on the cross so all this could be accomplished. He died because the Father could not and would not forsake us. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Don't ever put the Father and the Son against each other. Don't be clever and say this is cosmic child abuse. It's not because God the Father wanted this too. And God still loved the world he gave his Son. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. One of my dear friends is, uh, uh, well, it doesn't matter what she is, but she's amazing. But uh, anyway, uh, she's now in her, well, she must be in her late 60s. And uh, at the age of 11, she had a vision of Jesus Christ on the cross. Instead of standing before Jesus on the cross, she was standing behind his right shoulder. And he was looking over his shoulder at her. And she said to him, why did you do this for me? The age of 11. And he felt, she felt the Lord say, because I could not bear to go to heaven without you. Do you see this? Do you see this? Do you see the intense passion of the Father's heart towards you? Jesus did not go to the cross to change God, but to change us. There's not a hidden God behind the face of Christ. You know what God's like? He's like Christ. And in him there is no unchrist likeness at all. He did not go to the cross to change God. He went to the cross to change us. That all our negatives may be made positive by his cross. He died that awful abandonment to do away forever with our alienation and our estrangement. He crossed all possible worlds that we wouldn't have to. He plumbed the depths that we wouldn't have to because underneath are the everlasting arms. No matter how far or how low you go, there is one who went lower and has gone farther.
Hello? And if you ask why, there's only one answer the Bible gives. And the answer is because the Father wanted to adopt us. He wanted to adopt us. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Galatians and turn right. Verse 3, chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to put into effect when our times reach the fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. By the way, in the Greek... That's one sentence. The whole of chapter 1 is one sentence in the Greek. And so you should ask yourself, why is it possible for somebody like the Apostle to be so kind of just on fire, volcanically, pouring out this stuff? Which is a technical term for revelation. This stuff. And the answer is because he's on fire. He's on fire with the love of God that has impacted his life so much that he can't even almost use the laws of grammar. Just pouring out of him the purposes of God. God wanted to adopt us. If you're a woman, you're a son of God. If you're a man, you're the bride of Christ. Get used to it. (laughs) And the price tag on our adoption was 33 years of living, of fire and trial, of temptation and loud crying. The writer to the Hebrews said, Jesus learned obedience through the things He suffered through much loud crying, through tears, through living the life of the Holy Trinity, despite the human alienation. There is a man, the man, Christ Jesus, who's as good as it's possible for anybody to be, who's as close and connected to God as it's possible to be, who is one with the Father and who's living in this world, showing it is possible to live in connection with God. And this is what it looks like. 
And so when he comes across what the devil has done, he weeps. Because it was never meant to be like this. He sees the widow of Nain's son about to be buried and he looks upon this poor woman and he knows that she has nobody now to look after. Nobody to care for the field. Nobody to care for the allotment. Nobody to care for her. Nobody to look after. And it's this unpronounceable Greek word which means that his heart became like a tumble dryer and it went out to him, churning up and went out to her and he touched and healed the dead son because he was infectious with life. Do you get this? Miserable Christians are infectious with anything but life. I was born near Birmingham, so I can say this joke, but it's true. I was once praying for somebody who uh, was gloriously saved, and um, he was saved. And, uh, <clears throat> but I have to say, he looked like uh, really miserable. <clears throat> looked like three wet weekends in Grimsby, and I thought, oh my word, what were you going to do about this? Uh, and uh, <clears throat> So I said to him, I said, uh, I said, are you happy that the Lord has rescued you? And he said, this is actually true. You should have seen me before I got saved. (laughs) So important is that we be infectious with life. Jesus has come and we have life. Life in all its fullness. Jesus is the automatic invite to any party that was going. Just like us, eh? Jesus was the one that children loved to jump on his lap and pull his beards and terrorists liked to talk to. And academics liked to chew the fat with late at night. And here's this extraordinary thing that Jesus takes Simon the Zealot and Levi or Matthew the tax collector. Now you see, Simon the Zealot would wear a long knife at his belt. That's in part why he was called a zealot, because he made a vow. A vow in blood that says, if I come across a Roman or anybody who works for the Romans, I swear by Almighty God to cut them from ear to ear. Slight problem, because there's Matthew, who is a tax collector. And there's Simon the Zealot. Question... How come Matthew didn't lose his head? Because Jesus said, in me, you're reconciled. There's no barriers between Jew and Gentile, slave or free, male or female, zealot or Roman. Jewish traitor or zealot? Do you see this? Jesus lived in Adam's fallen world but refused to be fallen in it. Oh, that the church would refuse to live 
less than God wants it to live and live in a standard according to Christ. When Paul says in Romans 15, I have traveled all the way from Jerusalem to Illyricia to the modern day Yugoslavia, he said, I, I will come to you in the full measure of the blessing of the anointed one. What an extraordinary thing to say, to say that wherever I go, I promise I will come in the full blessing of the Christ. By the way, Christ isn't his surname, you know that, don't you? It's his job description. It is. Jesus the Christ is anointed to save, to heal. To baptize, immerse, drench, soak and saturate in the Holy Spirit. To come back as the returning king. That's what the Christ is. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the anointed one is the same yesterday, today and forever. His job description hasn't changed. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. And he's still anointing me. And if you preach the Christ, he will do what the Christ does best. Save, heal. Immerse, soak, saturate in the Holy Spirit and he'll get the kingdom in. Hello, it's, it's not rocket science. You read the book? God's got a book out. You read it? In T.F. Torrance's great phrase, Christ hammered fallen Adamic existence back into real relationship with the Father. By showing the world what it's like to be in touch with God. Had to turn the world the other way around. He bounced the world the right way up and said, this is what matters. Unless you become like a child, you should never enter the kingdom of God. This is what matters. That you love the least, the lost, the last, the little and the left out. That's what matters. This is what matters. That you be poor in spirit, broken and contract, shattered about your own poverty in relationship with God. And then you'll be the ones who are filled and satisfied. This is what matters is that you agree with God and, and you come to him and find rest. This is what matters. And I will show you how to have a relationship with the Father. I will show you what it means when I say to you, without me, you can do nothing. Because I demonstrate by my relationship with the Father that I too practice that. Calvin said Christ's whole life was a cross, a vicarious substitute. And he's right. And to quote the immortal words of Batman, never doubt in the dark what you learn in the light. And all of us go through darkness. There you are in your car, and a lorry overtakes you. Let me ask you a question. Would you rather be run over by the, val- by the shadow of a lorry or by a lorry? Would you rather be run over by a shadow of a lorry or a lorry? Okay. He's led us through the valley of the shadow of death 
It is insubstantial. Christ has defeated it. Christ has reduced it to nothing. All these people up and down the world are frightened of death. It is the greatest fear that's gripping people's hearts. Jesus said in the last days, men's hearts will fail them through fear. You're going to die through nuclear explosion. You're going to die through climate change. You're going to die through floods. Are you going to die through AIDS? Are you going to die through bird disease? What are you going to die of? You can't eat bananas, they make you fat. You can eat bananas, they're good for your sperm count. I mean, what are you supposed to do? Obviously, that only works for 50% of you, but I'll think of something else in a minute. Move on. One of the reasons why there is no such thing as a sacred secular desire that divides is that Christ has made everything whole. So if I was preparing you for marriage, and I might use this in my marriage talk, I'd say something like this, sex is God's good idea, and I bet you're glad you thought of it. He's not embarrassed by how he made it. He made us in certain ways because that's actually what he wanted to teach us about the love of God that burns in his heart. We were made for a relationship. So reconciled to the Father, we enter this circle of grace. And the truth is, many Christians show less grace to others than they themselves have received. See, not once did God ever say to me, first clean up your act, then I'll love you. We think he says that, but he never says that. So though I'm smelling a pig's world, he runs out to meet me and flows, throws his arms around me. He says, my son is lost and is now found. He was dead. He's now alive. Let's have a party. And of all the parables that Jesus told, the most popular image for the Father is a party-throwing God. However, did we get it so wrong? The world ends not with a bang or a whimper, but with a wedding feast in which we are the invited guests. And what difference does this make? I want to say simply everything. It's time you were converted to this. It's time your thinking was changed. That's true repentance. So that you change the way you think, so they change the way they behave. And as your thinking and your behavior changes, guess what? You become somebody who is good news as well as speaks the good news. All religions posit a God untouched by human need. Gods that refuse to get their hands dirty in a world, our world, a vast array of unmoved movers, except for Christianity. 
that shows us from Genesis right through to Revelation the God intent upon relationship. The God prepared to go to any and every length imaginable to bring us back. To cross all possible worlds. To go into the farthest country and bring us back. And when we see that, why all self-effort and all self-aggrandizement and all self-starting goes. There's so much nonsense spoken in the charismatic church that launches one's ego. As if it's down to us at all. all of grace I was lost I became a Christian in 1973 in 1973 I had a bit of a rough time I went away to school a boarding school a famous boarding school in which my fingernails were ripped out each of them by somebody who was 15, in which I was flapped. Flapped was a particularly a great punishment. It was, you were stripped naked, and you were bending over at the end of a long corridor, and any boy in the house could run at you and beat you with football boots as often as they wanted. In which I had to clean my study out with a toothbrush. It wasn't my study, it was my toothbrush. in which I had to sit on the loo seat to keep it warm because all the loos were outside with no locks upon the doors for the study holder who was 16 in case he wanted to empty his bowels. Well, my parents paid for this education. It was a great privilege, of course, for them, and they know nothing of this. So not surprising, I developed a huge temper. I mean, you would, wouldn't you, really? You felt kind of uh, unable to do anything. I felt completely powerless at... And you need to know that before I'd gone to school, I had nearly died of a massive overdose, uh, maladministered to me by a doctor. The international recommended dose for an adult for calcium is 300 units per year. I was having 3,000 units per day for three years. I'm written up in Lancet as the boy had enough calcium to kill an elephant. You must make your own conclusions about that one. <coughs> And since calcium makes my bones grow, I guess that's worked. God instantly healed me. At the age of 12, I lay in hospital bed. Ask myself this question. I wonder if there's a God. and I wonder if it's possible to be friends with him. I go away to school. All this happens. I become incredibly angry. And so I began to throw people around. I discovered a scalpel. I don't know where I got that scalpel. I used to throw it at people. I threw my brother through a hotel window. I had uh, quite a reputation. I like telling people this halfway through the weekend in case they want to mess with me. (laughs) (laughs) Then I heard Billy Graham in 1973 speak at Earl's Court and he got halfway through his talk and I went forward to give my life to the Lord and the steward said, it's not time. I said, it's time for me. I go back to my house, my boarding house, and the house of 50, I led 53 to the Lord, or 33 to the Lord. 
I discovered how to keep bishops out of churches and boys out of studies when I was doing Bible studies. Whenever the door opened and a boy wanted to come into a study, I'd go, Hallelujah! And the door would quickly shut and it worked with bishops ever since. I did hundreds and hundreds of Bible studies in John 3.16, but I knew nothing about the power of the Holy Spirit living in me. And in my time between school and university, I fell away from the Lord so much that I felt he had every justification to send me to hell. And then once I heard this preacher, still the greatest preacher I've ever heard. Nobody's ever heard him. He's not on tape. He's never written a book. And with the Good News Bible in his hand, he preached for an hour to a working class congregation who were enraptured by Christ. And I said, oh God, I want to do that. And I thought, I can't. I've messed up so much. So I wrote him pages and pages of confession. I mean pages. It's a miracle of grace. He didn't throw it straight into the waste paper basket. Instead he came to the university halls and with his collar on, which was very injurious to my pride, as he stood in the courtyard, he shouted, Is David White here? I wish he'd shut up. I called him up to my room and, I, and he said, you know what, Jesus loves you so much and I burst into tears. And I've come, he said, to assure you that Christ took your stuff on the cross and you are forgiven and let me pray for you to be filled and baptized, immersed, drenched, soaked and saturated in the Holy Spirit that empowered by his grace, forgiven of your sins, forgiven much that you may love much, you may tell others about him. That's what happened. And all I ever wanted to do was to work with this guy and to just be discipled by him. And guess what he did? He discipled me and my then girlfriend, now my wife, and we met every Tuesday. That's in itself. It's remarkable. Every Tuesday we were invited to the vicarage for lunch. He had five children. And every Tuesday we would rock up in the inner city of Liverpool with dog muck and graffiti and broken glass and our church broken into every week and the vicarage broken into every week and we sit around this table with different coloured plates and broken cups and every week he would demonstrate to us what it was to be a life lived in the full by Christ and sometimes he'd be shouting at his children then he'd say sorry to them and to us and sometimes he'd be disaffected with his wife and then he'd say sorry and sometimes you'd knock on the vicarage door and you know that you weren't welcome but then he remembered that he was supposed to be like Christ he said come on in and into that parish I went around knocking on people's doors saying hello I'm Dave I've got to talk to you about Jesus not a great opening line door slammed in my face more often than not. He said, I'm not going to give you the pulpit because I don't think you're a good enough preacher yet. How times have changed. You can preach in pubs. You can cut your teeth in pubs. 
old people's homes, lunch clubs. Paul McCartney's brother's pub was a particular disaster for me. Bar stools thrown at me. But I realized that in grace, God had rescued me. And that he held me and he keeps me. And he lives his life in and through me. For the gospel, you see, is not just that Jesus Christ died for me, but that he lives in me. Christ in me, the hope of glory. And he is the energy of his own commands within us. And he is the life we draw in and we simply say thank you. And when we share in his mission, we simply love with his love. It's not religion we want others to know. We want others to know relationship. We want others to know relationship with the glorious Trinity, the song and dance God. The song and dance God who in a glorious cosmic Kaylee are constantly stepping forward and back, inviting this person into the circle. And then that saying, have you met my son? Have you seen the Spirit? Do you know the Father? And so I want you, if you're going to reach past the walls of this building, I want you to bring all your wretched religion your pitiful mythology to the fire of God's embrace. I want you to put the ledger down. God's not taking notes. God's not keeping account in that way. Not least because sin is much more serious than a mere breaking of the law. It is offending the person of God. He's gentle and he's humble and hearty. Don't run and hide like Adam and Eve did. He will never abandon you. Christ will be faithful to you until you know as he knows the freedom of the Father. Until the very love the Father has for the Son fills your life. Do you know that? John 17, 26. I pray, says Jesus, Father, I pray for them that the love you have for me may be in them. What an extraordinary thing to pray for yourself. God, give me your love for Jesus. Until the sun fills you to life overflowing, until such love spills out in your relationship with others and all of creation, until the whole world is covered by the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the Atlantic is wet and Stoke Gifford is waiting. Not for religious people, but for people who are full of life, who are full of hope. Hope We use hope in all kinds of ways, don't we? But I hope that I may get thin. That's a forlorn hope. I hope England may beat West Indies in a one-day match. Possible hope. I hope England win the European Cup. An impossible hope. (laughs) But when the Bible uses the word hope, it means confident, joyous certainty that God what God has promised will come about. We have that hope, says the writer of the Hebrew. 
Hebrews, as an anchor for our soul. Come whatever storm may blow, come whatever whirlwind may hit us, we have this hope, this joyous, confident certainty that what God has promised will come true. The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Repeated, by the way, at least twice by two different prophets, interestingly enough, two prophets living centuries apart. It seems to be on the heart of God. It's on the heart of God, no less, in the book of Revelation, when from every people, tribe, language, and nation, there'll be people saying, God, you've done it all. Worthy is the Lamb. Okay? What do you reckon? So, uh, we're going to have a time of ministry. I'm going to invite people to come to the front. We have the minis- our ministry team, St. Andrew's people, uh, standing here. And we're going to have an uh, opportunity for you to come forward. Now, you can come forward for anything. 